Hey guys, and welcome to episode 39 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Today, you are joined by your hosts, Tierra and Jack, and we have another Q&A for you guys today. Before we get stuck into it, however, I just want to mention that if you enjoy the podcast, remember to tag myself, tag Tierra, and tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians in your Instagram reposts if you enjoy the episode. And also, if you are interested in getting in contact with us or checking out our coaching services, remember that we have a website now, www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. Fantastic. All right. So we received a lot of questions this week, and we're going to do our absolute best to try to get through them. We're really going to try to answer new topics that we haven't necessarily touched on before because, you know, week by week, sometimes we do get repeat questions on topics we've spoken about in depth before. So really sorry if we don't answer your specific question, but that's likely because we've talked about it on a previous episode. All right, so the first question was asked by Serenity's Tribe, and it says, thoughts on using a ketogenic diet in the last few weeks of prep, pros and cons. All right, so I think that there would be a heck of a lot more cons to using a ketogenic diet in the last few weeks of prep compared to there being any or if many pros. Now, the reason for this is that when we think about a ketogenic diet, so ketogenic diet is an extremely high fat diet. So around 80% of your calories need to come from fat, around 15% come from protein, and only 5% come from carbohydrates. So if we look at it in terms of that, with only 15% of your total calories coming from protein, especially considering that you're in the last few weeks of comp prep and that your calories are probably quite low, it's probably unlikely that you would be consuming sufficient protein, so around that 2 to 2.5 grams per kilogram of body weight mark to actually retain your hard-earned muscle mass. So that's one thing. You probably wouldn't be able to consume enough protein. And also we need to think about, so ketosis, it takes quite a number of weeks to actually get into ketosis. And some of you might have heard about what they call the keto flu. So the keto flu is, it can go on for a number of weeks. It usually goes on for the first two to three weeks, but this is when your body is really depleting its glycogen stores and it's kind of uh, getting rid of all that muscle glycogen and it's swapping over from predominantly using carbohydrates as a fuel source into using fats and ketones as a fuel source. And this can be really, really tough on the body. So it can take about two to three weeks to actually adapt to that and get yourself into ketosis. So if you were doing this in the last few weeks of comp prep, it would actually be even quite difficult to get yourself into ketosis on time. And then also it's really important to note that as you're actually swapping over from using carbohydrates into fat as your main fuel source, you're actually depleting a lot of enzymes that are responsible for storing like turning glucose into muscle glycogen. Because essentially, if your body isn't receiving a, an abundance of glucose and it doesn't need to store muscle glycogen, then it doesn't necessarily have a reason to produce those enzymes in abundance. And you can run into serious problems there because as you can imagine, if you're trying to do keto for the last few weeks of comp prep and then you know you want to do a carb up in peak week, 
uh-oh, it's not going to work very well because your body is not adapted to utilizing carbohydrates and storing muscle glycogen. So I would say that you'd probably run into quite a few issues with peaking as well. And Jack, what about exercise performance? Yeah, so in resistance training, you are training basically in the anaerobic capacity, which does use glycogen as its main fuel source if you actually have glycogen to be used. So therefore, you are compromising your ability to perform if you are just having a ketogenic diet. So maybe if you there is some sort of evidence for endurance runners like marathon, uh, maybe Ironman athletes as well who can compete effectively on a ketogenic diet, but it's not going to be ideal for a physique athlete because you do need glycogen to perform at your best. Yeah, and exactly. And when you think about the two things that stimulate muscle protein synthesis, one is resistance training and the second one is adequate protein intake. I think that you might actually run into issues with both of these things because if you're trying to retain your hard-earned muscle mass, like I touched on before, you might not even be able to get adequate protein in if you truly want to be in ketosis. And at the same time, during the end of a comp prep, you are not going for like strength gains and PBs in the gym. If anything, your volume actually usually increases towards the end of a comp prep because you generally can't lift as heavy of weights, but to make up for total volume load, you might start working in a higher rep range. So maybe you start using slightly lighter weights, but use like working more in a rep, of a rep range, maybe even between 15 to 30 reps for some exercises. And like Jack touched on before, that's predominantly anaerobic work and that uses glycogen and glucose for fuel. So if you're in ketosis, you're just not going to be able to hit those reps. Yeah, and I thought I'd just mention why on a ketogenic diet, you can't have too much protein. And it's because when you do have a decent amount of protein, it does get converted into glucose through gluconeogenesis. So that'll interfere with your ability to go into ketosis. And like Tierra said, it probably also means that you won't be able to have uh, what the recommended protein dosage is at, for your body weight, so 2.5 grams per kilo in a deficit. And the other factor as well is that all of your very high volume vegetables like potatoes, leafy greens, all those non-starchy veg as well, if you have an abundance of those, then that will le also lead to an excessive amount of carbohydrates for ketosis. So you won't be able to maximize the volume of your foods and have big salads or no fruit. Um, most of your vegetables will be cut out as well. Yeah, it would be so tough, honestly, on 5% of your total calories of carbohydrates and at the very end of a comp prep when, you know, usually energy intake is low, that is not many carbohydrates at all. For most people, that would probably be between like 20 to 50 grams of carbs per day. And think about the fiber intake too. You probably, you would really struggle to get in enough fiber. And also considering that your energy intake is so low and that you really want to make sure that you have a nutrient rich diet because you probably are prone to some sort of nutrient deficiency if you're not looking after yourself when you're in a severe energy deficit. And considering that the majority of our nutrient-dense foods all come from carbohydrate-containing foods and all of our plants and our whole grains and our legumes, ah, oh, gosh, I just, uh, I think that there would be a heck of a lot more cons to following a ketogenic diet. So I, I really, really wouldn't recommend it. But 
Honestly, the only pro that I can think about for following a ketogenic diet would be that when you're in ketosis, it is known to curb hunger. So you might feel a little bit less hungry and might have your appetite a bit more under control. But even in saying that, comp prep competitors, you know, energy intake is going to be low regardless. So I think that even if you were still even in ketosis, you would probably still be hungry. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, I really wouldn't recommend a ketogenic diet in at really in any point other than maybe if you have epilepsy or something, but definitely not in the last few weeks of comp prep. Mm, definitely. So I think we've summed that up pretty well. You probably got our opinions on keto diets pretty succinctly. <laughs> and moving on to the next question, which is by Sean. He asks, when deloading during a mass, do you typically go to maintenance calories or stay in a surplus? That is such a good question. And I think that a lot of people can probably relate to that. Some people might not actually know what to do. Mm. Personally, I don't think there's one right or wrong answer. You really just have to look at the big picture and what one week of either maintenance or a surplus is going to do. It's not really going to change too much in the long run. In saying that though, personally, I try to stay at maintenance calories just because you aren't providing your body with the same stimulus to... I guess, put on muscle uh, as compared to a normal week of training. However, there are a few um, caveats to that in the sense that some people respond very differently to a deload. So personally, when I go through a deload, I typically have to uh, keep my energy intake the same as to when I was training normally, even though I'm only training three days a week instead of five. And I think the main reason behind that is when you're not at the gym, you're probably doing something else active like you might go for a walk or the stress response associated with training decreases so you'll probably lose a significant amount of water weight as well and this has also happened to one of my other clients as well who we decreases um, calories to maintenance during the deload but we ended up having to keep them where they were at previously just due to that stress response decreasing yeah that's a really good point because yeah like you said during a deload the main goal isn't to be building new muscle tissue. You aren't really training for that purpose. But yeah, definitely NEAT could certainly increase because you've just got more time, especially if you're like Jack and you're spending around three hours in the gym five days a week. Mm-hmm. You know, or Tierra, four hours in the gym. Hey, 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 we go to the gym together. <laughs> We're there for the same amount of time. Uh, no, yes, certainly like both of us. But that's an extra, what, 15 to... 20 hours per Mm. week. So that's a hell of a lot more time to be doing other things that are productive and active. And yeah, NEAT can certainly increase. So it's going to be highly individual. I would just say, don't put yourself into a deficit during a deload. That's one thing I would steer clear of because you're really trying to maximally recover and you don't want to be in a deficit for that week. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, definitely stay clear of a deficit. And even when you are in a comp prep, there is some I guess, benefit of doing a refeed week combined with a deload. Uh, But I think Tara and I have slightly differing opinions about that. (laughs) We'll save that later for another (laughs) podcast. (laughs) So cool. That one's that question's been answered. So I'll move on to the next one. All right. So we actually got two interesting questions on surgery. So I'm just going to read this first one out. So it says, I'm getting surgery very soon. Breast augmentation. Three weeks post comp. 
How should one plan nutrition if they're not going to be active for a couple of weeks or even more? Should I sit at maintenance or in a slight deficit? So yeah, this is a really, really good question and there certainly are a heck of a lot of things to consider. So if we took breast augmentation for this example, so you probably aren't going to be able to train upper body, like you said, for quite a number of weeks. The first thing is, because you asked, should I sit at maintenance or in a slight deficit? There's quite a few reasons why I would encourage you to definitely sit at maintenance or even maybe potentially sit in a slight surplus if you are in your specific situation and you're coming out of a comp prep because if you're coming out of a comp prep, it's very likely that you are slightly maybe underweight or you're potentially at an unhealthy body weight and three weeks post comp, the goal is really to regain your health and get your body weight up. So I certainly would not stay in a deficit. I would definitely come back up to maintenance calories within those next three weeks, or I would sit in a very, very slight surplus. And that's not only for health reasons post-comp, but also we have to think about you're having a major surgery, you know, breast augmentation, they are going to be cutting into your muscles and you need to recover from that. And in order to recover from surgery or any sort of illness, you certainly need to be providing yourself with the right amount of energy and the right amount of nutrients, especially protein, in order to recover and rebuild and repair that muscle tissue. So I would certainly sit at maintenance or even in a very, very slight surplus. But at the same time, even though if you're not able to train upper body, I have seen you know, and talked to quite a few girls as well who after about the first week of recovering from that sort of surgery, generally you are able to do some light lower body work in the like in the later weeks as long as you don't get your blood pressure up too high. Uh, but honestly, don't take like recommendations from training from me for this. I would certainly clear everything with your doctor. But I would just say you should certainly be able to walk, you know, you should be able to go for walks every day. So still expend some energy there. And also, yeah, maybe in the coming weeks, get into some light lower body training that doesn't use any arms at all. So I'm talking about maybe just sitting on a leg extension, a leg curl, a leg press, doing some hip abductions and adductions, anything that just takes stress away from your upper body. Yeah, so, you got to think about heart rate as well. Though. Yeah, so certainly, yeah, you don't want to get your blood pressure up too high. You don't want to get your heart rate up too high because especially in those very first few weeks when the stitches and those wounds are still trying to heal, you know, if you got your heart rate up really, really high, then obviously those could potentially burst and you really wouldn't want to run into complications like that. So just take it easy, you know. It's only a few weeks. It's going to be okay. Luckily, you're choosing to do this after your comp prep and it's going to be quite a while until you compete again so you'll be, get back up to where you were you'll be strong again it'll be all good but yeah i'd say honestly for any sort of surgery certainly sit at least at maintenance make sure you're getting enough protein in at least two grams per kilogram of body weight or in a slight surplus if you are slightly underweight or want to gain a little bit of weight for health yeah definitely 100 percent and it, this also applies to the other other surgery question as well. So staying at least at a maintenance to promote recovery, even a very slight surplus as well. 
Again, you have to look at the long term and prioritize your recovery, not really look at your body composition and worried about losing muscle and you're looking a bit softer. Like that's not the goal here. The goal is to recover as best as possible and as fast as possible. Yeah, exactly. Priorities, right? So moving on to the next question, which is by James. He asks, how do you guys deal with emotional imbalances closer to comp? So what I want everyone to do right now is go on your phone, type in the song I Am A Rock by Simon and Garfunkel, and you're going to play that thing on repeat, all right? (laughs) Final few weeks of comp. I am a rock. I am an island. (laughs) All right, but seriously, Jack, how do you handle your emotions? So I guess the key point here is that Comp prep is a choice and one that you've made to do yourself. So you shouldn't let it negatively impact other people. So it comes to a point of willpower, I think, and just, it's definitely going to be difficult. And there's going to be the hormonal, emotional imbalances, but also just the hunger associated ones as well. And having so much to do on your plate, work, if you study, having to do all your training, having to meal prep. So I think having someone to talk to and sort of bitch about everything can be quite handy but usually that can also create problems in itself if that's your partner or if it's one of your close friends as well so but I think some sort of um, release is quite important yeah I think it's important to just understand why you're feeling this way because obviously You are going to be very energy deprived. You are going to be quite food focused, very goal orientated. And certainly when we are that energy deprived and we're in such a like severe caloric deficit, it is quite normal to get a bit emotional and just like randomly feel sad sometimes, which sucks, you know, and it it is really, really hard to shake. And it's a hell of a lot easier to say, oh, just get over it kind of thing. Or even, you know, yourself, you're like, Everything is so goddamn good in life right now. I actually have no reason to be sad, but I just can't shake this feeling. So it sucks, but you just have to acknowledge why you're feeling like that and just try to overcome it. You know, wait it out, talk to a loved one. And my, my best recommendation is just to really get outside and maybe get some fresh air and go for a walk and get to the gym, you know, even though like the hardest part is always starting a workout and beginning just like with anything. But once you get into it and once you finish, you'll really, really thank yourself and you'll get that exercise high. And really at the end of comp prep as well, it's really just about ticking boxes and you just have to see the light at the end of the tunnel and just remember how fun and how celebratory it's going to be on show day. And hell, if it was easy, everyone would do it. But like this is certainly a niche and not many people can get into the condition that a lot of comp prep competitors do. So yeah, that that would probably be my best advice. But it's, it's kind of inevitable, but you just, you really, really got to push through. Yeah, definitely. And it'll definitely be a challenge that's different for everyone. Some people like with greater support networks will probably be able to deal with it better than other people. Um, but that's just the way it is, I guess. And yeah. And just try to put in an effort to, 
you know, not like have this nasty negative cloud just floating around you everywhere you go. Like, like Jack said, this is a choice. So everywhere you go, don't be grumpy and don't be rude to people. You know, no one is forcing you into competing. I've never heard of a situation where someone has been held at gunpoint and said, you must get lean. <laughs> you must get on a bodybuilding stage. All right. So this is a choice. So put in an effort to smile and be nice to everyone else. Because remember, a hell of a lot of people won't really understand what you're doing either. And don't be rude to people either, especially if they aren't educated on bodybuilding and they ask you a question that might be silly to you. Like they say, oh, why can't you come out to lunch with us? Don't snap at them and be like, I have to eat my prepped meal. Don't you understand? Like, be kind, all right? Like, don't like assume that everyone knows what you're doing. Be like a dog. Be like a dog. Just smile and <laughs> wag your tail <laughs> and don't pee on the carpet. <laughs> I don't know. You'd have to be a pretty incompetent comp prep competitor to do any of those things. But. Incontinent and incompetent. <laughs> All right. I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. But basically, just be a good human being and don't be too egocentric and just push through. It's going to be all good. You're going to have a really fun day on comp day. So the next question is by Jade who asks, is fish oil a must have? What's the actual benefits? So there are a lot of misconceptions about fish oils and typically fish oil tablets will contain uh, omega-3, which is a essential fatty acid. So in the, the name sort of suggests that it's an essential product in that our body can't produce it ourselves, just like our essential amino acids, which we have to consume through the diet. And basically omega-3s are very important for a number of reasons. They help with our cardiovascular health, immune function and cognitive function as well. Yeah, even like eye health too. So for omega-3s, essentially omega-3s, there's three different types. There's EPA and DHA. So these are two different structures of omega-3s that are found in, in like seafood products. And then there's also ALA, which is a structure of omega-3 that is found in plant products. But in order for ALA to actually be bioavailable, uh, in the body, it needs to be converted into DHA. Now, it, there is a bit of, the research is quite mixed on fish oil consumption and the benefits. Obviously, we do know that it is essential for health. Our body cannot synthesize omega-3, but they're still unsure of the exact amounts that we actually need. But Generally, recommendations say 250 to 500 milligrams of combined EPA plus DHA consumed per day. Now, remember, that's a total amount for EPA plus DHA. If you consume a fish oil tablet that is like 1,000 milligrams or 2,000 milligrams or something, that doesn't mean that you're getting 1,000 or 2,000 milligrams worth of EPA plus DHA because there are other uh, components in that fish oil too. So really look on the back of the packet and see how much EPA plus DHA is actually in that fish oil. But yeah, the research is very mixed on fish oil consumption, whether it actually works taking it by itself or whether or not we should just stick to real food. So the general recommendations are to just consume at least two serves of fatty fish per week, whether that's something like salmon, tuna, sardines, mackerel, 
or if you are a vegan or vegetarian and you don't consume seafood, you can consume plant sources of omega-3 too. So things like chia seeds, flax seeds, walnuts, but in order to get enough of the ALA from that and to be converted into DHA, you will have to consume quite a bit of those nuts and seeds. Yeah, so to answer your actual question, fish oil tablets aren't essential, but obviously omega-3 is essential. So it's up to you whether you want to consume that through food or through fish oil tablets. I think as dietitians, we'll usually recommend trying to get it through food as a wholesome diet. Oh, and I'll just finally note that omega-3s are actually, they actually come from algae. And the way that fish actually get their omega-3s is from consuming algae from the sea. So if you are a vegan or vegetarian, you can also consume algae oil, which will also give you omega-3s too. So you can always keep that in mind. All right, so we're going to move on to this next question, which is quite interesting. It asks, is it okay to take creatine monohydrate when you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant? Now, this is pretty interesting. So creatine is probably the most well-researched supplement in history, or at least it's way, way up there. And time after time after time, creatine supplementation has been proven to be very safe. And also we have to remember that even though people take creatine in supplemental form, we also get creatine from the diet because creatine is found predominantly in animal sources. So things like when we eat beef or fish or chicken, we will get creatine from that food too. So even if you're not supplementing it, you still get some from the diet if you are consuming animal products. But in terms of whether or not it's safe for a pregnant woman, I had a quick look and there aren't many longitudinal studies or, you know, well-controlled, randomized control studies looking at pregnant women who consume creatine compared to those who don't, but there are quite a few animal studies and they actually are showing uh, quite positive benefits for both the mother and the fetus when the mother is consuming creatine at that regular dose of like three to five grams per day. So yeah, pretty interesting. And creatine isn't only important for exercise performance in terms of muscle contraction, but creatine has been shown to be very, very important for, you know, cognitive function and brain efficiency and memory and also preventing traumatic brain injury, especially for people like who suffer severe blows to the head. So you can imagine NFL players, rugby players, boxers, if they've been supplementing with creatine and they get a really nasty knock to the head, usually they actually have a much better recovery because there's actually a very high turnover of creatine, creatine phosphate, ATP in the brain. So it plays a huge role in cognitive function. And there are studies now coming out, mainly, like I said, in animal studies, but we can still take those into account sometimes, showing positive effects for the mother and the fetus during development. So. Personally, I would say from what I know, it's pretty damn safe to continue to supplement during pregnancy. But again, I'm not a doctor, so please do talk to your doctor about everything that you're putting into your body when you're planning to get pregnant and when you're pregnant and also after you've had your baby and you're breastfeeding. Because there's more than just one of you, right? There's a baby in there. Yeah, I guess it's important to note that we are just dietitians. We're not medical practitioners, so uh, we do 
admit when things are outside of our scope of practice. Yeah, that's certain. So moving on to the next question, which is by Matt. He asks, what's the best app slash website an average gym goer could use to get more dieting information or food nutrient guides? So we're going to imply this to training as well. And Tierra and I do use quite a few different sources to continue learning, which is obviously very important as the literature keeps on growing. So to start off with, we'll start with the muscle and strength pyramids, which is by Eric Helms, a great overview of his take on like volume intensity, structuring a program. Basically, a lot of our knowledge is derived from that. Yeah, and also getting a monthly subscription or even if you're like me, if you get a lifetime subscription to Mass, so that is monthly applications in strength sports, that is so awesome because it keeps you up to date with the most recent literature coming out on all topics relating to nutrition, training, supplementation. It's fantastic. So yeah, getting a monthly subscription to that. I'd also say if you're ever interested in double checking if you should actually be consuming a supplement or not, and you want some evidence-based answers, head over to examine.com. It is so comprehensive and they've got so much great information on there. So if you just type in any supplement like creatine, caffeine, even your crazy herbs and stuff. Mm, and then they've after- They've expanded it, quite a lot. Yeah, it's amazing. And they do huge literature reviews on all the available research on that supplement and they'll give you a non-biased answer, which is awesome. So type in anything supplement-wise and then type in after it examine.com. That's really good. And then in terms of like podcasts and stuff, listening to evidence-based podcasts. So Stronger by Science is an awesome one. That's one of Jack and I's new favorite podcasts that's held with uh, Greg Knuckles and Eric Trexler. And they've also got their Stronger by Science website too. That's really good. Sigma Nutrition is awesome for everything nutrition and health. So is Revive Stronger as well. That's a really good one. Iraqi Nutrition Podcast, that's a great podcast as well. Yeah, Tierra and I don't watch too much YouTube, but Jeff Nippard's quite good on YouTube. Uh, Vitamin PhD on Instagram is great. So is Lane Norton and JPS Health and Fitness, is it? Yeah, they're all fantastic. Especially, yeah, you mentioned Vitamin PhD. We've had her on the podcast before. It was episode 18. She's a gut health scientist and she's amazing. She's always just debunking things and putting out evidence-based information. I also follow this girl on Instagram too called Food Science Babe. She's awesome too. She's um she's really really cool. If you want to hear any myths being debunked about, you know, pesticides and organic food, that's really good too. But Yeah, there are a hell of a lot of resources out there, but you just have to um, do your cross-referencing to making sure that you are getting evidence-based information. But to be honest, I don't think that anything is probably going to trump actually doing a university degree. So picking something that you're passionate in, especially if it's something like nutrition and exercise science or sports science or exercise physiology, actually going to uni and getting a tertiary level degree, I don't think anything can probably trump that. That's going to give you the best well-rounded knowledge and education in so many different realms so that you can really grasp an understanding of so many different things in relation to exercise, nutrition, health, human physiology, biochemistry, you name it. 
Yeah, definitely. A tertiary education was worth every penny for us. Yeah, even though we have a massive hex debt, but hey, we'll um, we'll get rid of it. Okay, so this next question is by Lauren Greaves, and it asks, eating the same food throughout prep, can you build up an allergy? For example, oats for breakfast, chicken, rice, and greens for 20 plus weeks. How hard is it to reverse diet back to normal food? So essentially, the word allergy is thrown around quite a lot, but allergy is actually an immune response that's created by your body due to the consumption of a certain food and basically an intolerance, which is a bit more vague of a word. And it's quite an umbrella term, which is basically your body doesn't respond that well to eating a particular food, Um, but it's nowhere near as serious as an allergy. So an allergy could be something like from like swelling of the eyes, which is angioedema to constriction of the airways and obviously a risk of mortality there. And whereas intolerance is just bloating, maybe flatulence, burping, maybe some GI distress. Yeah, so when we're thinking about the difference between an allergy and an intolerance, I guess an example would be someone who has a peanut allergy. So someone who's allergic to peanuts, if they eat peanuts, or if they're even near peanuts, they can have anaphylaxis. So those swelling of the airways and they can't breathe and that can be life-threatening. But then someone, on the other hand, might have a lactose intolerance, which means that if they consume too many dairy products or they consume too much lactose, then they might get some diarrhea, but it's not necessarily deadly. Yeah, I would say that it's very unlikely you would even build up an intolerance in a Comprem, and I I wouldn't call it an intolerance. I would just say that your body might not be 100% used to digesting a particular food. Like a good example is maybe someone who's been vegetarian for a long time and then starts eating meat again. Like they might, at first, they might have to adapt to the consumption of animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely an intolerance. But I actually haven't heard, I'm not aware of anything like if you consume too much of one food that it would develop into an allergy and that you would have an immune response. I've never heard of that before. No, neither have I. So yeah, personally, I wouldn't be worried. And I would just personally, I would just go back to normal food, whatever you want to eat. Like if you do experience any discomfort, that's when you just know when to take it a bit slower for that particular food or food group. Yeah, certainly. And I think that this is a bit of a myth that I've seen thrown around in social media realms and even by some some comp prep competitors who say like, yeah, you know, in comp prep, I ate so many oats or I ate so much broccoli that now I'm allergic to it. But when you actually think about it, that's it's almost counterintuitive and it would actually work almost the other way. And I'm going to use dairy as another example for this because When you are constantly consuming dairy, then there is a feedback mechanism from your pancreas saying, okay, I'm continuously having lactose coming into the digestive system, so I need to keep producing the enzyme lactase. So that enzyme will break down lactose into the two monosaccharides, glucose and galactose, right? So it's that feedback loop. But if you cut out dairy, right, and you're not consuming it for quite a number of weeks and months, then your body's like, hey, we're not even getting this food anymore, so we can probably start to suppress lactase production because we don't need it, and that's kind of just a waste of energy, right? So then when you, like, 
a post comp, if you hadn't consumed dairy for like the last six months and then you go have a big tub of ice cream or something like that, it's a huge hit on your digestive system and it's like, whoa, I'm not ready for this. And that way you would have an intolerance to lactose, but it, it wouldn't be an allergy. And I'm just saying that because the more often that you consume a certain food, I would imagine the more that your body just gets used to digesting that food. You actually usually run into issues when you introduce just randomly new foods. So for example, someone who just one day eats like a whole can of refried beans or something when they are not used to eating beans, they might run into some problems (laughs) or, you know, just eat something really spicy or like has two massive onions or something really, really random. You can run into a bit of digestive distress. It might not even necessarily be an intolerance. It could maybe be just very acute, a very acute, acute intolerance but you just got to get used to it again yeah definitely definitely nothing to stress about i think and she also said how hard is it to reverse diet back to normal food honestly when you're in a competition prep i would one i wouldn't separate foods into like comp prep food and normal food i would just combine the two and say everything that you are able to eat safely is food so all food is normal food And I would encourage you to maintain, you know, a similar diet pre and post comp and all year round. It's just really part of your dietary habits and your lifestyle. Really during a competition prep, you're really just manipulating energy intake. I wouldn't exclude any sort of food groups or anything like that because yeah, you can potentially different. What in what way? I do agree with you that normal might not be the best word and By no means are we saying anything against the question asker, it's just a word. But I think there is a natural flow of difference between an off-season and a comp prep. Obviously, in an off-season, you have more calories, so you're making higher energy food choices. You're not too stressed about what you're eating and how it's going to fit into your macros potentially. So let's just say for me, I'm eating more things like jam, honey, uh, bagels, a hell of a lot of fruit bread. Jack is getting amongst the raisin bread. <laughs> and yeah, lots of dried fruit, raisins, dates. And obviously, I won't really be selecting those food options in comp prep. I'll be going more for the higher volume options. And there will be a linear decline in the... It's not going to be like cold turkey like from one to the other. It's going to be like for my first macro cut, I might take out like the honey and jam, leave in the fruit the dried fruit, and then as the calories continue to drop, then that's when I'll continue taking out the more carb-dense food options and leave the higher volume options. And then in that case, how would you find transitioning back into that way of eating? Would you expect it to cause you gastrointestinal upset or would it more just be an appetite thing? Because obviously some of those foods like honey and jam aren't super satiating. So would you say it's more of a, like it just would take time to gradually start eating more? Yeah, I think it's, it depends on the food as well because like things like honey and jam are very, and dried fruit, they're very, like very easy to digest. Whereas if it's, if you haven't had something like self-raising flour, the whole comp prep, and then you introduce that, that might be a bit different. 
Yeah, actually, in saying that, uh, Jack and I actually did a recent post on the Bodybuilding Dietitian's Instagram. If you go onto our Instagram page and look for this recent photo of a big salad, we actually talked about strategically manipulating your food intake and food choices from the beginning of a comp prep to the end, and also when you're transitioning into an improvement season too. So for more detail on, you know, specific foods and things like that, you can definitely go check out that post. But yeah, I think that we are coming up on time, so that'll probably be our last question for the day. But we will finish on our very last question of the day, which is one what thing. What did you learn? What did you learn, man? What did you learn? <laughs> so because we're doing a lot of research on dogs, my fact that I learned for the week will probably be about pets for the foreseeable future. <laughs> and like probably literally for the next six months. But... <laughs> Uh, I, ho- I hope you guys don't mind learning about food, nutrition, exercise, and puppies. <laughs> so it's essentially the difference between purebred and pedigree. So we are looking to get a border collie, and we didn't really know the difference between purebred and pedigree. We're just saying purebred. So essentially, when people say purebred, it it's just a sort of like a meaningless term, but it is meant to mean that your dog is from the same lineage of border collies it's not really hasn't got like kelpie or german shepherd in there as well but what pedigree means is that it's actually had dns dna testing to enforce that it is a the same lineage so it goes back to their great grandparents and ensures that there's there's no mix up in there yeah because we wouldn't want our dog inheriting any diseases or anything like that so it's really is important that if you ever are buying a dog make sure that it has had a dna test because especially in a purebred you know you you wouldn't know maybe a brother had sex with a sister or something like Mm -hmm. that and man when you're committing to a dog you don't want to run into troubles like that that would just be so sad and it's so avoidable right yeah it is more expensive but it's definitely worth it to like the same the same reason you would do you would do a checkup on your child to see if they have any inheritable diseases or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And what did you learn this week, Tierra? Uh, so one thing that I learned this week is that when it comes to exercise, it's, not when it comes to dogs. No, I'm sorry, mine's not about a dog today. <laughs> it was last week, so if you want to hear about my little puppy facts, you can go back to last week's episode. <laughs> But what I learned this week is that when it comes to choosing an exercise and performing an exercise, it's not always about the weight that you lift and it's not always necessarily about the movement pattern, but sometimes it's about the setup. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I love hip thrusts. Like I live by hip thrusts. I've been doing hip thrusts like three times a week for like close to two years now or something like that. But Previously, I was doing hip thrusts on a bench, and when we recently moved to World's Gym Brisbane, the benches are slightly higher than what I was actually used to at our old gym at UQ Sport, and I was just getting a lot of really irritating back niggles and back pain because the bench was so high up, and because I like to reset with my hip thrusts, so bring the bar back to the ground before I do another rep. I was just in such an awkward position, and it was just really messing up my back, and it wasn't that I wasn't strong enough to do heavier hip thrusts or anything like that, But yeah, it was really just the setup and it's not like my body's not accustomed or isn't built to do a hip thrust or I'm incapable. 
Anyway, so yeah, I learned that it's actually much better to do it on those adjustable steppers. So like where you can put the little plastic squares down and then put a stepper block on top. And you can really adjust that specifically for your height and your leverages. So yeah, that is so much better. And finally, I can do hip thrusts with great form, completely pain-free, and my back pain has completely gone away just by making that slight tweak, which is just really, really awesome. So that's just a little reminder that if you are experiencing pain during an exercise, but you know that you're capable of doing it, sometimes just look at how it's set up. So especially this could be any sort of exercise that uses a bench like just look at the angle of the bench at which you're lying and yeah that's what I learned this week but oh I'm just so grateful to be doing heavy hip thrusts again pain-free and they feel damn good Woohoo! so this is the conclusion of our 39th episode if you've enjoyed what you've listened to please feel free to repost it to your instagram stories tag myself tag tiara tag the bodybuilding dietitians and we'll see you later this week yeah we have a very exciting episode coming up for our next one we have a very special guest on so stay tuned for that we are so damn excited for you guys all right see you later <laughs>